Let's go before the Lord again and ask for his blessing that we may hear from him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we humble ourselves in the name of Christ and come before you that we may hear from you. We may hear the wisdom that you have put in Christ, the wisdom of our salvation by which he has become our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your suffering, the suffering of the cross, the shame of the cross, that you may bring us to the Father, that you may make us accepted, that we may have the right to be called the children of God. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the Holy Spirit about these things. May he grant us ability to hear from you through the scriptures. May you encourage your people by the truth of what he accomplished and what the resurrection should mean to us. We thank you, Lord. We honor you. All things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning again. This morning, we are going to be in Romans 5, as I promised. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Romans 5, 12 to 14. I think we are having some serious issue with my internet. All right. Uh, sorry for the technical glitch. That's what happens. Just a reminder that we are sinners. <laughs> so I was saying we are in Romans this morning. Romans chapter 5. I had thought to do verse 12 to 14. But then I discovered that I'm only going to read up to verse 14. But verse 13 and 14 we're going to have to be working in the next message, I got bogged down in Veskov. Yeah, that's what happens. That shows that we have a good message. <laughs> All right, let's go to Romans 5, 12 to 14. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And who end there. For our title, we have death in Adam, or sin and death in Adam, and that will be part one, sin and death in Adam, part one. And another title, which will be unusual to me, is putting the pieces together. <laughs> putting the pieces together. The book of Romans, like the book of Hebrews, is a theologically complex book. There are many moving parts that need to be dissected and also stitched together. And Apostle Paul has labored to declare the problem that the Romans chapter 1 citizens 
faces. The problem that the moralist faces. The problem that the professed Lord Keeper and his circumcision faces. And they all have one problem. They're all sinners. <laughs> and guilty before God as it is written and Paul would give us a summary statement or statements in Romans 3 and says, as it is written from verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside they have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And that is to say, all humans are sinners. They have, we have fallen short of the mark of righteousness. And the Greek word that is translated for sure for four short means to be left behind in the race and so fail to reach the goal. To be left behind in the race and so fail to reach the goal to fall short of the end. So we have failed for lack of power, for lack of will, to reach the end, to reach the goal, which is God's righteousness. All humans have been left in the race of righteousness. So you are picturing a race, maybe a marathon, and you have a goal to meet. This marathon should be finished in two hours, and you're finishing it in 17 hours. <laughs> you have failed to catch up, and thus all human attempts to be righteous before God are unprofitable. That's the conclusion of it. They cannot make a sinner righteous before God. Even the best of men cannot recommend themselves to God by their own deeds of the flesh, for God to accept them as to bless them. So those who claim to do the law are in a great delusion. They are suffering a great delusion to think that they can give the law what the law demands. But there's good news in this regard for such who have discovered by God's grace that they are sinners and lack power in themselves to partake of the righteousness by which they can be seen as righteous by God himself. And that's a scandal that a sinner could actually get to a point where God considers them as righteous even though their very experience 
day-to-day experience is contrary to the matter of righteousness. So this has happened by a righteousness that comes apart from the law, a righteousness that is apart from human doing of any kind. And in God saying that there is already built in the offense of the gospel to say to men and women, well, you cannot be righteous by yourself, but there is a righteousness that I accept and that righteousness cannot be earned. It is only given. Men and women do not naturally accept such a proposition that discounts the works of their flesh. They will fill their mouths with arguments to resist God's message, to explain away God's message. But God's message, God's gospel, excludes all manner of boasting. Because if there is any boasting that is not in the cross of Christ, that boasting is not from God. And it is evil boasting. And salvation, that is righteousness, by law-keeping, causes men and women to boast in themselves before God as did The Pharisee in Luke 18, he came and boasted of his own righteousness before the law. And that is why this righteousness that has been revealed, which is testified by the law and the prophets, is apart from the law, but is by and through faith. But faith essentially saying it is a righteousness that has been accomplished outside of oneself. This righteousness by faith means it is a righteousness that was done by someone who is not you, who is not yourself. So the gospel declares the righteousness of God. The gospel declares the righteousness of God. A righteousness that is freely given to as many as should be saved. It cannot be earned. It does not respect any human merit of any kind because there's none born in Adam who have merit or are able to merit anything before God. That's the only way for any to possess the blessing of God. The blessing of God is eternal life and righteousness. It is by God himself freely imputing his righteousness, which was by the obedience of Christ. And the obedience of Christ centers around his shed blood in which the language of redemption 
the language of mercy seat, the language of propitiation is used. The obedience of Christ was the faith or faithfulness of Christ to the Father, even in death. The one who has life in himself, agreeing to submit to death, is the hallmark of the obedience of Christ. Jesus was not naturally under the condemnation of sin because he was not a sinner. And to see the God of creation coming and submitting himself to the death that creatures should die was the act of the humiliation of Christ. So God purposed, we're going to do a lot of theology, theological thinking, to develop our message. I see that I'm having some buffering issues. I don't know why. This is the first time. So if when we are done, I have another video that I'll make available. Okay? So hang in there. We're not going to lose the message. It's being recorded on many different platforms. So, but this is what I want you to hear this morning. God purposed that there cannot be life apart from death. Death is essential to life. Look around and you will see it. The animals eating each other. The trees dying and becoming part of the soil to feed the remainder of the trees. And what we eat, we kill. We cook, we kill. We're killing the vegetables, we're killing everything. So a seed must be planted into the ground if it should rise to life and produce more. This not because men have become very good people with the seeds in the ground, but this is God's message. God is preaching. We could have had food in a different way, but he determined that something has to be planted into the ground, and then when it germinates, it rises, it produces fruit, and then we survive on what it produces. So Jesus in John 12 verse 4 said this, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. That's John 12, 24. Jesus said, the grain of wheat must die when it is planted into the ground. But if it dies, it produces much grain. If it does not die, it remains alone 
and that to say, Jesus Christ is the grain of wheat. He is the seed that must be planted into the ground that he may produce much grain, that he may produce life for those who did not have it. And until and unless this grain of wheat is planted into the ground by way of death and the cross, there's none who possesses the life of God. They have the promise, but not the life itself. Jesus says, unless I die, I remain alone with life. No one else possesses it. But when I have been planted, then you have life. So we need to have this understanding as we approach Adam, as we also approach Jesus. Because Adam is more complicated than what many people have understood. Because they do not read him with the eyes of Christ Jesus. If you read the Bible without the lens of Jesus, you will not understand it. And that is to say, the Lord Jesus did not just come randomly. He was not captured by some thugs or mafia loitering around in Palestine. He was the man on a journey, the man on a mission. If you're on a journey, it's very purposeful. If you're going outside of the country, you have your money, you have your passport, you have everything that you need for the journey. So Jesus is the man the good Samaritan, the man who was on the journey, who found the one man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead, left naked. That was him. And he came with a laundry list of things to do. Things that were agreed between him and the father which things at the end of his mission said were finished. He said, everything that I was given by the Father to do, I have finished. Every jot and tittle of it I have done. So he gave up the ghost. So to the ignorant professed law keeper, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, you law keeper who thought, Abraham was justified by works. God says, no, it's impossible. Abraham had nothing to bring of himself that could justify him. There's no justification apart from the planting of the grain of wheat into the ground. Abraham would have boasted before God if he was justified based on something that he did. So Abraham got a good testimony because of the imputation of someone's righteousness. Because of the imputation of someone's righteousness. And the same was also true with David. 
These are luminary figures in the history of Israel, of national Israel. David, Abraham, these are big names. The same happened with David. Surely David deserved to die because of adultery and the murder of Uriah, but he lived. But this is what a lot of people miss. David was deserving of death even before he murdered Uriah and taken Bathsheba. Adultery and murder are not what would have condemned him. The self-righteous do not see this in their character assassination of David. They become so fixated on the murder of Uriah and the taking of Bathsheba and say, absent of that, David would have been a very wonderful person. (laughs) David was already a sinner in Adam. That is why he did those things. Your sins and mine prove they manifest what kind of a cookie we are, chocolate chip cookie or what, that you and I are sinners. But both Abraham and David received a good report because of the transaction called imputation in which God did not impute their sin to them. In other words, God did not deal with them according to what they deserved, which was condemnation. He did not impute their sins, did not reckon their sins to them, and thus were declared righteous by reason of doing nothing. And this gospel of doing nothing we call the lazy boy gospel. And it declares a righteousness in which men and women do not work for their salvation. Because God by nature will not exchange such things as are found in Christ through the works of the flesh. Salvation is an exchange but you do not bring your own things to that exchange. You bring that which God has given you in Christ for that exchange. That's why Jesus said, what shall a man give in exchange for their soul? So to try and exchange salvation with your own works is forbidden and it is impossible. That is why it is impossible to progress into righteousness through the sanctification of turning off the horror movies. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, would say, sanctification by law-keeping is seeking to be perfected by the flesh. And the book of Hebrews calls that dead works. If you seek to be perfected by the works of the flesh, Those are dead works. Yes, you are working, but the fruit of it is dead before God. And what it does to you is that it produces not a clean conscience, but an evil conscience because you are never satisfied 
with whatever it is that you're doing. Okay? So a, con a conscience that is constantly feeling condemned is because it is not rested in what God is saying about Jesus. You have to rest in the arguments that God has put forward in respect of how he deals with you and I as a sinner. Once you understand that, then you can rest. Doesn't mean that you won't struggle with sin, but you know how your sin relates to you and Christ. Okay? So the promise of life was through faith that it may be of grace. Again, we must emphasize that faith in the context of the discussion of salvation is saying through the work of Christ because you could have faith in Muhammad. So this faith is particular to a particular person and to a particular work that Christ did. Your faith in mine is not an additional requirement to grace or to the cross. It is only looking to that which was already finished. But all faith looks to this one called Jesus Christ, who was given over to death because of our transgressions, because of our sin. And his death is what satisfied all that we ever owed God by reason of our sin. Our sin put us in a condition where we owed God something that we could not pay. The death of Christ made good on that debt. Okay? So his death canceled all the sin debt. It cleared the sin debt of all the elect of all time. And his resurrection was testimony of the justification of those for whom he died. To say it is well for them. As I have said it before, the resurrection of Christ was the receipt received as it were for a payment made and accepted. You have to understand these things, the language of it. It was the receipt received or given to Christ to say what payment he made did not bounce. By Jesus dying, he was like one writing a check to the bank. And if your check has no credit, has no money to support it, it's going to bounce. The check that Jesus wrote with his own blood was good. It did not bounce. So the resurrection is 
God's testimony to Jesus, they seek to say, everything is good. Okay? So when you go to the store and you make a purchase of whatever, you get a receipt to say you have made a successful transaction. If your card bounces for lack of funds, the store clerk will ask you if you have another card to use. Sir or ma'am, do you have another card? If not, they are returning the items to the shelves. So in respect of the Lord, we are told that by one offering of himself, he perfected forever the sanctified, those who were set apart. We are also told that he purchased the church with his blood. He purchased it. When you go to the store and you buy something, you take it home, you put it in the plastic bag, and you take it home with you. You don't leave it at Walmart for them to sell it again. Okay? That's not good business. He purchased it. With what? With his blood. Where did he purchase it from? And from what? Did he buy the church from Walmart? From Amazon? From the thrift store? Or the dollar store? No, he purchased it from sin. Death and condemnation. In other words, he set the church free. He justified his body from all sin. So do not listen to people who say Jesus died, but he did not justify anyone. He did not justify his people. So what did he come to do then? <laughs> I will not make peace with such statements. They are anti-gospel statements that we will not accept. But Apostle Paul continued and said, we have a wonderful message. We're building a lot of stuff that will help you understand the next stage of the message. Apostle Paul continued and said, The redeemed in their present experience and circumstances of this life and this world, as we are reading the news, as we see things happening around us, should not be overtaken, should not be overtaken by the circumstances of their environment. Because they have a better story. They have a better country. Their attitude should be that of rejoicing. Rejoice even in their tribulations, in their sufferings. Rejoice because of their justification in and by Christ Jesus. Their justification is way bigger news to them 
than anything that happens in the world. They should rejoice because their real issue, their real problem that they could never find a solution for in this life or anywhere, God has forever settled for them in Christ. He has granted them a standing, a righteous standing before him in Christ and access to him by his grace. And that to say the grace of God is not and cannot be accessed by or through works. You cannot have access to such a person of their rank and honor and dignity and majesty as God by something that you do. It has to be granted you to say, oh yeah, Paul, come here. You, yeah, I'm talking about you. Just as happened to the thief on the cross. There was no way that the thief on the cross could by anything that he did be granted what Jesus said to him. Today, you shall surely be with me in paradise. That is being granted access to the one of high rank on honor and honor. So the access to grace is grace. It requires grace to receive grace and to enter grace. As John the Baptist said in John 3, no man can receive anything unless it has been granted them from above. It requires God's grace to receive grace, to see grace, to rejoice in grace. But Apostle Paul then amplified the fallen condition of man and said in a different way from Romans 3, verse 10 to 18, but still saying the same thing, and said, those whom God has justified were of this kind. They were without strength. That's the beginning verses of Romans chapter 5. They were without strength. They were powerless. They were ungodly, still sinners, and were enemies. And in this state of the fallen human condition, there's nothing that anyone could do to reconcile themselves to God in an acceptable way. If you're struggling with sin, which you should, this is why, because you're powerless, because you're ungodly, because you are a sinner. Yeah? So there's nothing that you can do to write yourself with God, to reconcile yourself to God in a way that is acceptable to him. And yet God demonstrated his love to such of the elect who were in this condition 
in justifying and reconciling them to himself through the cross of Christ. And what did, and sorry, and what God did is not even something the best of sinners would contemplate doing even for another sinner, even for a very seemingly good human being. You know, you're just going to go and say, oh, I'm going to get killed for them. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. And that demonstrates and amplifies God's love, grace, and mercy. In Christ's death, God reconciled all the elect to himself. The elect were not reconciled to God by their faith but by the death of Christ who stood for them. Let's repeat that for clarity. The elect were not reconciled to God by their faith. They were reconciled by the shed blood of Christ. That is our reconciliation with him. But there are still more details to unravel to find out how we got to this state of affairs. How did we get to this situation where we needed redemption, where we needed reconciliation? Something happened that brought all humanity into this condition of helplessness. How did we become ungodly? How did we become weak? How did we become enemies with God in our minds by wicked works? Is it because we ate too much fried food or did not eat food that was healthy, maybe with too much gluten? <laughs> ate a lot of popcorn, fries, and forgot to exercise. <laughs> we could use some exercise. That's helpful. But how did we as human beings come into this condition? Paul answers and says, Romans 5, 12, and that means we are going into our text. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That is an expansion of what Paul introduced in the preceding verses where he said grace, justification, righteousness, Reconciliation are through the person of Jesus Christ as the representative or substitute person. Christ Jesus was and is the representative man, the one man through whom everything good has happened for the ungodly. Christ Jesus is the man by which all these things have been mediated to us, have been given us. 
But how did the ungodliness come about? Was it an individual act of rebellion by each person who has ever lived and is living? Or was it a corporate affair? Paul says, just as all matters of salvation were accomplished through the one man, Christ Jesus, sin which necessitated the redemption also ended through the one man. In other words, God's dealings with men are in the two men, Adam and Christ. The one man bringing bad news and the other bringing a reversal of the bad news. So much that the matter of your eternity depends not what depends not on what you do, but in which Adam you are in. In which of the two men you are in. Those are the only two important people who ever pass through planet Earth. Sin entered the world of God's creation through one man. But what did it also bring in tow? What was it towing with it? It brought death with it. Sin caused both the spiritual and physical decay of the human being. Sin and death come together. The wages of sin is death. Death does not come because people get old or get sick. It comes because of sin. Death is the judgment of God on sin. God says the soul that sins must die. But there's more to death than just the removal of the life force from the physical body. It is tied to judgment of condemnation, which Paul will expound later in this chapter. Death is always tied to that judgment of condemnation, and that is why the Lord Jesus died. He had been condemned, condemned of sin. Not his sin, but it was because of sin that he was condemned. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 said, the sting of death is sin. That's the connection. The sting of death is sin. And the strength or power of sin is the law. I call that the triangle of death. Sin, law, and death. (laughs) It's a deadly triangle. This is how they are related. Sin does not just enter. Sin did not just enter 
there has to be a commandment. There has to be a law, a commandment given by God. It doesn't matter what the commandment is. And when that commandment is broken, sin has ended. And when sin enters, condemnation immediately follows. And with the condemnation, death comes. That's how these things work together. Sin, law, death. That's the category. Paul says, when sin and its consequence entered through the one man, Adam, it just did not rest with Adam. It spread to all men, and he says, because all sinned. If all sinned, then all came under the power of that which was in Adam or had overtaken Adam. And from this, man needed redemption. But how can that be? How can all be called sinners and suffer death when they were not in the Garden of Eden? You were not there. I was not there. Who is it who was in the garden? What principle is that which is at work that condemns people who did not do the same crime? Let us try to answer that by going to the text of Genesis chapter 2. And unfortunately, we won't be able to finish the answering of it until three, four messages from today. But we begin here, Genesis 2, 15 to 25. We're going to be there for a while. Genesis 2, 15 to 25. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The man was Adam, and there was a lot of gardening to do, if you ask me. Adam did not have a lawnmower, did not have a John Deere tractor. <laughs> but it was his God-given responsibility and duty to take care of the garden. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam was given free reign in the garden. He could eat just about anything and everything freely. You may eat, God said to him. But with one exception, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens when I eat? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We do not know what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. Was it a maple tree? 
Was it some pine tree? Whatever. And to what family it belonged, no one has that tree in their orchard. The significance of eating from it was in the commandment that God attached to the eating of it or from it. He said, in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that you shall eat, not if you eat it. This is where many make a mess of the whole matter of Adam and salvation. People say, well, if Adam had not eaten of the tree, then sin would not have happened and we would not have gotten into the trouble that we are in and are dealing with in this sinful flesh. If Adam had just not eaten, life would be so good. But that is just reasoning without a proper appreciation of the gospel. There was no conditional clause given to Adam about the tree. God did not say, if you eat, you shall surely die. But if you don't eat, you're fine. He made a declarative statement. A statement of what was going to happen in the day. So there was appointed a day for Adam to eat. As there was appointed a day for Christ to be crucified. Because Christ is the fulfillment of that. In the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. And that means the eating of the tree would be the event that would bring sin and death because sin is the breaking of God's commandment. Also, to those who say life would have been better if Adam had not sinned, I would say, no, life is always better in Christ. <laughs> life is better in Christ than in the innocent Adam. Adam, if he had not sinned, would give you some free vegetables and fruits, but he could not give you eternal life. Eternal life cannot be given by one who is from the dust. The dust does not have life to give. And Adam was given the commandment so that he would break, that he would break it. That's why he was given the commandment. He was given it so that he would break it. And bring death and condemnation to all humanity. God set him up to do it. And brought the tempter, the devil, to close the deal. If God did not want sin to happen, all he needed was not to give the commandment or to not put the tree. Fence the tree with some razor wire or tell the devil to get out of the garden. God was not taking a nap when this all was happening. 
There was no way that Adam would have not broken the commandment. Adam was the man of the dust. And if you give a man of the dust a commandment not to do something, they will go right ahead and do it. The moment that Adam was told not to eat from the tree, I'm sure he got more curious. As we know, curiosity killed a cat. And we all sinned in him and died. Curiosity. People are killed from curiosity. Just being curious. Like, I just want to see what's in there. And they drown. In Second Samuel, First Samuel 6, when the ark of the Lord was being brought back, God killed maybe 50 to 70,000 people for opening and looking into the ark to see if the things that God had put in the ark were still there. Just looking, peeping, and boom, 50,000 people dead. Curiosity. So Adam was going to eat. Granted. But let us explore some more theological understanding. The covenantalists, those are the reformed theologians and their preachers, claim that Adam was under a covenant of works by which if he had not eaten from the tree, then he would have been able to merit eternal life for himself and all of humanity. Because all of humanity was in him. So if Adam had obeyed, then all would have been saved. Without exception. And they draw this from Romans 5, which says, Adam represented all of humanity in the entrance of sin, death, and condemnation. It's true, Adam represented all humanity in the entrance of sin, death, and condemnation. But there's nothing in Romans 5 or Genesis 2 and 3 that says Adam was under such an obligation. Adam was not under contract. Adam was not under covenant. Because there were no conditions of life attached to his obedience. If you don't eat, then there's nothing like that. If Adam had not eaten, then he would have continued as innocent, but without the righteousness of God. If Adam had obeyed as they claim, you would have had the life of Adam, not the life of Christ. Because the life of Christ is only imputed to you. You would have had the righteousness of Adam, which is not the righteousness of God. And you would be praying to God with Adam as your mediator and not Christ. And Adam would not have been qualified in himself to be the mediator between God and man. 
So you would not be any much different from the problems of the Levitical priesthood. You would be a full-blown Roman Catholic. <laughs> but even that, Adam was not going to be innocent for very long. Sooner rather than later, he was going to do some foolishness. As we know from the New Testament, the righteousness of God is only had, is only possessed by faith. It is only given as a gift. It is not by the works of the flesh, by the works of the law, by the works of human obedience. The righteousness of God is by grace alone. Remember these things and keep hammering them and can only be imputed. Imputed not to an innocent person, but a sinner. Christ Jesus was not imputed with righteousness. He was imputed with sin, but righteousness belonged to him. Eternal life is by God's grace alone. Thus could never be earned by those who are of the dust. And this applies to Adam and all who are and were in him. Even more importantly, it was impossible for Adam to merit life by his obedience. As Paul has already observed, impossible. If you are not the God-man, you cannot merit life. It's impossible. This is what Paul said, Romans 3. Let's go to Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The whole world, guilty. Adam was under the law of the commandment that was given him not for him to end righteousness, but to stop his mouth from boasting. To get him to sing amazing grace, how great the sound that served a wretch like me. Everyone has to sing amazing grace who comes to God. Adam was not excluded from that. He had to be found guilty. Adam's mouth, like your mouth and mine, must be stopped. He must be found guilty before God. That's the whole purpose of that commandment. Adam must be found guilty. And in Adam and through Adam, the whole world is found guilty, is made guilty before God. And this was by God's design. This is not an accident. Paul is not teaching something new here in Romans 3. Every mouth must be stopped. So the commandment not to eat was given to make all become sinners. 
make them guilty, remove any boasting, so that they would come to him, approach him only on the basis of his grace and mercy. That's the point. That's what is happening with Adam. In Romans 11.32, we'll go back to verse 20 of Romans 3, but let's go to Romans 11.32. Paul says, For God has committed them all to disobedience. Oh, God does not do that. God does not cause people to be disobedient. Paul says, yes, he does. For God has committed them all to disobedience, but with a reason. There's a reason for it. That he might have mercy on all, but all there would be qualified in the larger context of Romans teaching. He commits man to disobedience so that you only approach him based on his grace and mercy. That's how he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him that he is the God of grace and mercy. And you can't do that apart from sin, apart from your disobedience. There's no grace and mercy to talk about if there's no sin, if there's no disobedience. That's the point, man. So Paul's conclusion in Romans 3.20, he says, Therefore, seeing that all men have been made guilty, the conclusion of that is, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law <coughs> is the knowledge of sin. What did God call the tree? He called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe then that this tree represented the testimony of the law to Adam to give him the knowledge of sin. Because that's what the law does. Gives you knowledge of good and evil. Adam, from this tree, ate from this tree and died. And any who claim to do the law are killed by the law. When Adam ate from the tree, he became naked. When you try to do the law, your nakedness is revealed, that you are not righteous. Those who say the law is for sanctification are not telling the truth. They want you to get killed. <laughs> Remember Paul to the Galatians, you who want to do the law, do you not hear what the law says? Do you understand what the law is actually saying? The law is the letter of death. It is the letter that kills. That's what it does. It reveals your nakedness and then it kills you. So sin, death, and condemnation came by the one man, Adam, as he represented all men as the first man, but his representation was not for a covenant of works, 
that he may earn salvation for himself and for you. That was not the contract. Yes, Adam was the federal head of all humanity. He represented all humanity as the first man that God created. Because as the first man, all of humanity would descend from him. We all descend from the one person. So whatever he suffered would affect all men as the body of Adam. We, in our natural state, are the body of Adam because we all descend from him. So you could say all of humanity is the body of Adam. Yeah, we came from the body of Adam because even our mother Eve came from the body of Adam. So we came from the body of Adam. And this was very purposeful on the part of God. God already knew about his purpose in Christ. Thus, in Adam, God assembled or arranged all things with a view to Christ Jesus. Everything in this detail is speaking of Jesus. Thus, Adam, as I said, cannot be understood without understanding Jesus. And Christ precedes Adam as the Logos. Jesus Christ is the word of God who was in the beginning with God as John 1, 1 says. So Adam was there to lay the foundation, to set the stage for the preaching and arrival of Christ. In Adam, the history of redemption was given a time stamp in human terms. God's purpose in Christ was from eternity. But in the unfolding of that story, Adam begins time zero in human terms. Okay? And the story of Christ begins to unfold. And that is why we are told that Adam was a type of him who was to come, which thing we're going to go to. But that's what Romans 5 says. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So Christ Jesus was alone under the covenant of works to bring salvation. And he came to the world. He came to earth in the incarnation with that mission clearly spelled out to him by the Father. He came in the prophecy and said, Law in the book, in the volume of the book, it is written about me, O God, to do your will. And so when he came, he said, I have work that I've been given by my father to do. In John 17, verse 1 to 3, hear this. John says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, 
Father, the hour has come. That's the hour of the cross. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. The hour of the cross was appointed from eternity to the second of it. Every detail was appointed by God to be done exactly the way it was supposed to be done. And Jesus is not reminding God about the hour. He is just making a statement of fact for those who were around him to hear. To say Jesus was not a victim, he had not been overpowered. The hour has come, glorify your son. As you have given him authority over all flesh, Christ has authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life. You see, he should give eternal life. There's no one who ends eternal life. That he, Christ, should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So he restricts who gets eternal life to the elect, to as many. This is the reason he showed up. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, to know Christ. That's what Paul was praying in Philippians, that, that I may know him in the hope of the resurrection. I discount all my righteousness before the law as dung. It's nothing. It's loss. It's useless to me. I want to know him. Adam could not say that. He had no authority over all flesh to give them eternal life. This was not communicated or contracted to Adam to do. Christ Jesus alone was appointed to this and had authority over all flesh, and he alone gave eternal life to as many as were given him. So Jesus comes thousands of years later after Adam, but he tells us of what happened before Adam and says, the authority to give life was always in me. It was always given me to do. So there's no way that Adam would have obeyed God in the place of Christ's obedience. Impossible. Okay? Let's go to Genesis 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. God said it is not good that a man should be alone. He is not complete alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him to complement him and to give him his fullness and his purpose. The purpose of the man is fully, fully realized when this other helpmate has arrived. And that is already anticipative of the arrival of Jesus and the giving of the church. God determined from eternity 
to give Jesus a bride. This is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Let's see if that is correct. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Adam was given authority to name the creatures, but not to give them life. Christ Jesus was given authority to name all the elect. The names of the elect were written before they were even formed from before the foundation of the world. Your names were already written. Where did they come from? Christ had the authority to name every one of his elect people. He was given authority to give eternal life. And for Adam, there was no helper found comparable to him. Not from the creatures of the dust. As, as Christ Jesus, there was no helper found comparable to him. So a helper has to be formed for Adam as the helper has to be formed for Christ Jesus. So what was God's solution? Verse 21, Genesis 2, And the Lord God caused a deep slip to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. God caused a deep slip to fall on Adam, and he slept, and God performed the first surgery on a man without any anesthetics. <laughs> but why make a helper for Adam this way? Why not make him the same way Adam was made, straight from the dust? It's not like the earth was running out of clay. <laughs> when you interrogate these details is when you unravel God's mind in Christ. If Adam should have a bride... He, that's Adam, must be put into a deep sleep by God himself. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And that means what? The bride that Adam must possess must come through the death of the man. The bride that complements Adam must come through the death of Adam. It must come through the shedding of blood. Blood shed by God's own hands on Adam. That means the bride that Christ must and will have will not just come from election. She must be formed from his death. In other words, the church must be formed from the death of Christ as he was smitten of God. The piercing of Christ. The shedding of the blood of Christ. That's what formed the church. Verse 22. 
Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. God fashioned a woman out of this rib from this side. I bet you that Eve was the most beautiful woman ever. Miss Universe, year in and year out. (laughs) And God brought her to the man. Two things have happened. Adam went through a type or a shadow of the death of Christ and got himself a woman. He went through a resurrection as he was awakened from his deep sleep. Adam must be raised from the dead that he may be joined to his newfound bride. Adam must die and he must resurrect if he should see his bride. If Christ remains dead, he cannot be united to his church. And after the resurrection, God introduced the woman to him. God brought her to the man. The woman did not bring herself to the man. God may have told Adam before the, before the transaction about getting him a suitable partner, but it seems Adam was expecting it. But Eve was clueless of what was going on as you and I were clueless about Christ before God introduced us to him. Christ has always known that he would have a church, but we did not know that we were part of that church. And so God is he who brought her and introduced her to her man and said, this is your man. This is your husband. And that is to say, all who are formed from the side of Jesus by his death on the cross are introduced to him by God. There's no one who comes to Christ by themselves. You have to be introduced to your husband by who? By God himself. As Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, a type of the Holy Spirit, came and introduced Rebekah to Isaac. Yeah? And said, this is your husband. John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Adam could not say, oh, I don't know you. Who are you? (laughs) What are you? What are you trying to do here? Yes, you're a pretty man, but no. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And still in John, chapter 6, verse 44 and 45, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him 
and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has had and learned from the Father comes to me. Eve had to have learned something from the Father. She learned something from God about Adam. And so she came to Adam. And what did Mr. Adam say? Verse 23 of Genesis 2. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, because she was taken out of me. Adam accepted her unconditionally before she even could show her cooking and dishwashing skills. Yeah? (laughs) He was happy to see her. He beheld her beauty. He understood that she was formed from his flesh. And Adam named her and said, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Her name is after a man. And thus the church is called the body of Christ. Because it was formed from the stricken body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. See the union that is in view, this union there in the language of Adam, flesh of my flesh. That's union. Total and complete union. And that is what Paul said about Christ and said we are complete in him. Flesh of his flesh. That is the relationship that we sustain to Christ. Which thing he said to Saul if you still remember on the road to Damascus, so, so, why are you persecuting me? Was Paul beating up Jesus himself? No, this was in reference to the church. That Saul was persecuting because of his zeal for the law. But Jesus comes and says, you're not persecuting my church, you're persecuting me. Flesh of my flesh. That's union. Verse 24 of Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And for this we'll get commentary from the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5. Let's go to Ephesians 5. Paul and Katie will be very much aware of this one. <laughs> Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. Apostle Paul reaches to Genesis 2 in the teaching of the relationship that the husband and the wife are supposed to sustain to each other. He says, Ephesians 5, 25, 32, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Gave himself in death. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word and that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, 
Eve was presented to Adam by God, but the church is presented to Christ by himself. He presents the church to himself. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Not because of anything that they're doing, because a lot of people will see that she should be holy and without blemish and they begin to push you to do works and stuff like that. No, 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 that's not what that is saying. That is the condition that the church will be in as it is presented to him because he has cleansed it by himself. And that's why I said Eve was the most beautiful woman to ever walk on planet Earth because she was the foremost picture of the church of Christ. So husbands, verse 28, ought to love their own wives and their own bodies. That drawing from Adam and Eve, Eve who became the flesh of Adam and became, right, one with Adam. He who loves his wife loves himself. Because the wife is said to be your flesh. So you're not going to hate your flesh. You're going to nourish your flesh. You're going to wash it. You're going to buy some really good lotion for it and perfume, right? <laughs> Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And that to say, the Lord hates none of his elect. The Lord does not hate any of his people in spite of their sins. Because that will be hating himself. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Do you see where this is going? And now to prove his point, verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is a great mystery in the matter of our marriages. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this whole marriage thing and the basis and the exhortation for husbands to love their wives is based on Christ and his relationship to the church. And that to say Adam and Eve were preaching Christ and his relationship to the church. That's the best correct way to read Adam. So, Adam was typical or typological, that's the language that we use. He was typical or typological of the Lord Jesus. And Eve was a type of the church. That is the emphasis of the one man in Romans 5. He mirrored the person of Jesus in many ways, which we shall unfold. But not in every way, because the shadow is always inferior to its, to its fulfillment. Jesus has a whole lot more going beyond Adam. But as we look at Adam, that's a story that is in view. And Genesis 2.25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That was the situation before they sinned. But I believe that this also the relationship the church sustains to Christ. We are not ashamed 
of our sins. Christ is not ashamed of us because of our sins. If you would see Jesus here and now, you will not be ashamed. He will not make you ashamed because of your natural nakedness, because of your sinfulness. He's not like that. See him in Palestine. Jesus was naked in Palestine in that he had veiled his glory. It seemed like he was not clothed with the glory that he typically would be carrying. He had it, but it was veiled. So he seemed naked. And he was going about hanging out with prostitutes. <laughs> and drinking a lot of beer. Yeah. Naked, not ashamed. But the Lord Jesus also became naked on the cross. And as his bride, he was made naked because of our sin. But still he was not ashamed, according to the book of Hebrews. He despised the shame of the cross because of the glory that lay ahead of him. Naked, not ashamed. I know they have that program somewhere on TV. I haven't watched it. Naked and afraid. No, we, the redeemed are not naked and afraid. <laughs> Let them be naked and afraid. We are not naked and afraid. We have been accepted and we have peace with God. We have confidence. That's what the Bible says. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Right? That's confidence. That's not being afraid. In conclusion, we have a seemingly long conclusion to lay again the foundation of the understanding of the gospel. We want to explore the principle by which sin, death, and condemnation came to all men. How is it possible that God accounted to all that which one man did? It is a strange thing and many would even come and say it's unfair that God would reckon to us the matter and consequence of another man's sin or disobedience. Like my sin being accounted to you, he never did it. Well, no, that's not right. That's your natural reaction. <laughs> that, that cannot be right. And that principle is not totally foreign to the affairs of men, but it did not originate with us. The principle at play is called imputation. And this means a legal reckoning of something to someone. A legal reckoning of something to someone, whether good or bad. As if that someone did it themselves. So if my sins are imputed to you, you're going to be accounted in this transaction as the one who did it. And thus you suffer the consequences of that. 
or the benefit of it. So the truth of the matter is that this is God's way of doing things. And the sooner we understood it, we understand it, the more we have more comfort. This is a legitimate transaction. A lot of people attack it. Roman Catholicism attack it. All these people who say, oh, the righteousness of Christ is not enough. You need to work some other personal righteousness. What are they saying? They are saying the righteousness that was imputed by God to you is not enough. It's not good enough until and unless you supplement it with your own works of righteousness. That's what they're saying. God determined for his glory that he would render all men sinners by the simple act of one man. You and I would not think that a terrible thing to just go and eat something from a tree. You would not think that's something terrible. And not only that, to also suffer the consequences of that sin. Not only him, but everyone who comes after him. And here is the illustration of the principle. Speaking of Christ, speaking of Melchizedek and his superiority over the law, the superiority of the priesthood of Christ as it was in the person of Melchizedek with Abraham as an exhibit. A commentary of Genesis 14 of Abraham's encounter with this mysterious but great figure in the person of Melchizedek. I really love that name. I, if I could give myself a second name, I'll be James Melchizedek. <laughs> it sounds so cool. Melchizedek, Hebrews 7. This is just for you to have an appreciation more and more of the principle because it's very pervasive in the Bible testimony. Hebrews 7 verse 4. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, the spoils of war. Abraham went and recovered his nephew Lot and defeated the kings, got some spoils of war, and he gave a tenth of that to this character. This was not talking about tithing, a lot of, Gospel entrepreneurs want to come here to make money and say, see, tithing predated the law, as was with the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. So you are obligated to still give a tenth of your money. No, that's not the correct way of reading it. Abraham did not give all that he had. He gave a tenth of the spoils of all. But let's continue. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So effect number one, 
The Levites had commandment to receive tithes from their brethren because they did not have a land allocation. They were committed to the ministry of the tabernacle. Though they, Levites, come from the loins of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. See the connection that is being built here. The Levites come from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not from Abraham, received tithes from Abraham. In other words, Levi gave a tenth to someone. Levi, according to the law, should receive and not give. But in this case, they gave as they were represented by Abraham. So what is the theological truth at work in interpreting the encounter? Verse 7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. The lesser, the inferior, is blessed by the better, the higher. And here, verse 8, mortal men receive tithes, that is the Levites, that is what happened under the law. The Levites receive the tithes. But there, in the story of Abraham and Melchizedek, Melchizedek, it is he who received them, of whom it was witnessed that he lives, in other words, he lives forever. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Levi, who came Many years after, decades, if not hundreds of years, we are told, paid tithes through Abraham, even though Levi did not yet exist. Levi paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, even though Levi was very distant from being born, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father, when, when Melchizedek met him, when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was in the loins. Levi was still in the loins, but Abraham's action, authority and relation in the encounter with Melchizedek was for a gospel testimony. That's what God meant by that encounter. But what is the point? What is the principle? The point here is union. It's representation. It's headship. It's imputation. Levi was in union with Abraham. That's the only way God would say they paid tithes through Abraham. They were in union before even being born. They were in union. In other words, Abraham represented all the Levitical priesthood and its inferiority to Christ because Melchizedek is Christ. Levi was seen in another 
even though physically he did not yet exist and also did not do that particular transaction. The Levites did not bring tithes to Melchizedek, but they brought their tithes in a representative person. God made union for them with Abraham. So the actions of Abraham to Melchizedek were imputed to Levi and were construed by God as having been done by Levi. In Adam, having done what he did, we were in union with him. And whatever he did was construed by God as having been done by us. Thus, in Abraham giving a tenth to Melchizedek, in the discussion in Hebrews 7, he was proving the inferiority of the law to Christ, whose priesthood is of the order of Melchizedek. You understand the point? You understand the connection? So it's union, it's representation, it's federal headship. Because Abraham represented all the Levites. He represented the law in that action. And Melchizedek was Christ Jesus. Okay? So, with that understanding, Paul would say, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, through the one man, Abraham, all the Levites paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned because of union, representation, federal headship, imputation. So these are central tenets of the gospel that we, by God's grace, need to continue to be very fluent at. Through the sin of one man, all sinned and all came under the power of death because of the principle of imputation. And it is this principle of imputation that is the cornerstone of how you and I, who are the ungodly sinners, have found a standing before God. It seems like it has a negative aspect, but it also becomes very glorious when you get to the positive aspect of it. In that God now comes and says, by the same principle, I am calling you righteous by something that he did not do. <laughs> so our union and representation did not stop with Adam. There was a mirror to it in the matter of righteousness in Christ. So Paul would conclude for our message today and say, in verse 13 and 14, of Romans 5, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. You see, that's what imputation does. People became guilty who had not sinned in the likeness of what Adam did, who was a type of the one to come, okay? So the Lord Jesus, the man of righteousness, the one man of righteousness, has indeed risen 
And we have much to be thankful to God for his resurrection, thankful to him for his suffering and his righteousness and the free imputation of that righteousness. That is what we possess here and now. We have it. We don't feel it. People say, oh, you're supposed to feel your righteousness. No, imputation does not make you righteous. It declares you to be righteous on account of something that someone <coughs> already did. Okay? So we'll continue to expound on that for the next three, four messages. We'll be in Genesis again next week, and we'll keep working it. Okay? God be praised. Let us pray, and then I'll say a few more things. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the message of Christ, the message of the imputation of Adam's sin to us, the imputation that brought sin, death, and condemnation to us. It made us guilty. But the story did not end there. There was another man who came to reverse all that was in Adam and even to put us in a much better position by the invitation of his righteousness, which came by his death on the cross. The resurrection bearing testimony to the reality of it. We thank you for the Christ who died, for the Christ who is risen, and for the Christ who is seated because he made an end to the purification of sin. The Christ who shall return and bring his people to himself. Even though we are sinners this day, we are those who have much hope. Oh Lord, we thank you. We honor you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. To all who are listening, I don't know what happened. This is the first time that I've had a poor network. I don't know what happened with my modem. The message is still going to be available in its fullness without any interruption because I have other recorders. So I'll post it. And when I post it, you're going to see it on my wall on Facebook. Okay? So go back and listen to that message. It's going to be showing up. Once we're done with everything, you're going to see it on Simon Audio. Even the video, I also have a copy of the video that is clean, without any hesitations and buffering and all those things, okay? All right, happy resurrection. God bless you. Thank you.